And I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. This morning we will be giving our attention to verses 14 uh, to 22. Uh, as you're turning there, I'd just like to take a moment to, to thank everybody for their hospitality and your generosity over the past week. Um, I have to say at the end of the week, my heart is full. Uh, but not only is my heart full, my uh, belly uh, is as well. I feel like I, I should have brought bigger pants, uh, maybe an encouragement to the congregation. If ever you have to bring out another candidate, then maybe you uh, tailor design a, a preaching suit made of sweatpant material uh, so that he uh, doesn't have to bring a second pair of clothes the second week. Um, it really seems that food and fellowship go hand in hand, doesn't it? Or at least it should. I have a buddy of mine who uh, a few years ago commented to me that he was at a, he was a, re- at a restaurant and he saw a, a family sitting around the table with their heads bowed. And they were bowed for a really long time, and he thought, man, what a devout family, uh, praying. And then it turns out he, he re- realized they actually weren't praying, everybody was just you know, staring at their iPhones. Um, I think a generation ago, the, the greatest threat to the family was, was the TV tray, where uh, the center of gravity was not everybody around the dinner table looking at one another, but the, the impetus was on uh, the television. Now it, it seems to become even more personalized, where everybody has their own mini television in the palm of uh, their hand. I think there's a, a palatable irony, isn't there, uh, that uh, so many of us long for deeper friendships, uh, even as we have 600-plus friends on Facebook. It's, it's so ironic, isn't it, that uh, people are longing for something deeper, and yet even as you're gathered around other people, uh, you're checking social media. Um, I think this is interesting. If, if this is how we treat our own family and our own friends, do we do the same thing with respect to our Heavenly Father? We long for heavenly friendship. We pursue lesser things, although meanwhile, regardless, be it pornography, alcohol, gluttony, entertainment, work, self-promotion, bigger and better toys. It's as if the Lord is gathered with His people and we keep looking at these lesser things, these cheap substitutes. And yet Scripture reminds us that these cheap substitutes are deadly poisons. The Bible has a word for these cheap substitutes, and that's idolatry. And this morning, I'd like us to consider the family meal that our Savior has spread before his church at his table so that we might reject those cheap substitutes that try to hinder our appetite for heaven. So with that in mind, let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I have to say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What am I implying? Am I implying that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I imply that what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. 
You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. Let's go before the throne of grace as we pray that the Spirit would illuminate our hearts as we hear his word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word given to your people. And we ask this morning that you would bless not only the reading of it, but the preaching of it as well, that it would convict our hearts and strengthen us and nourish us as we prepare to come before the feast you have spread before us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There are three considerations I'd like for us uh, to have before us this morning. The first would be considering our present participation with Christ. You see that here in verses 14 to 16. The second thing I'd like us to consider is our joint participation with one another in Christ. You'll see that in verse 17. And finally, we will consider our exclusive participation with one another with Christ in verses 18 to 22. So as we consider the nature of the Lord's Supper, we see that it is a present participation, a joint participation, and an exclusive participation. You know, in most cities in the ancient Mediterranean, there's really no room for social advancement. You think of, uh, of, of Athens or, uh, or, or Thebes or Rome or many of these other cities in the Mediterranean by the first century, where people have been around for centuries. Uh, the, land, the land had all been bought up, so to speak. Uh, if you were to have any plot of land, it came by inheritance. It came by your family name. There was no way to climb up the social ladder. However, this is not so the case in Corinth. In the second century BC, the city had been razed to the ground by the Romans, and a, a century later had been kind of rebooted as a new Roman colony and the new kind of economic capital of the Mediterranean region, really second only to uh, Rome and uh, Alexandria. And though the Romans had leveled this city to the ground again, and by Paul's day had been reconstituted as as this thriving commercial epicenter. So Corinth became the place for someone to go make a name for themselves. It was a place for you to go and climb up the social ladder in ways that you could not really do in many other cities. Corinth then became the symbol of the self-made man. A city characterized by pride and ambition, with a lust for power and prestige, a lust for entertainment, and a lust for sexual goods. You see, Corinth was a port city located on the Peloponnese in southern Greece, with a bustling sex trade, state-sanctioned temple prostitution, tethered to the religious life of the community. It's very odd, from a 21st century perspective, that the red-light district and the religious center of the people were all located in the same place. We might describe ancient Corinth, Corinth not so much as the Las Vegas or Hollywood of the Mediterranean, but perhaps the ancient equivalent of the San Fernando Valley. The patron deity was Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic pleasure. Idols flooded the market in her honor. Illicit sexual activity was one of the ways in which she was honored. Sexual self-indulgence was not only seen to be a civil right, but a moral and religious duty. Not only did you have a right to these illicit activities, you were expected to do so. Striking how it is then when we read Acts chapter 18 that this is the very place where Paul begins the mission to the Gentiles. 
that Christ himself says, this is the place where I want the outpost of my kingdom to begin to break in to the Gentiles. Pornographic center of imperial Rome. So I think we begin to notice immediately the pressing pastoral problems one might face if as if one were called to be a pastor of the town of Corinth. Perhaps we now recognize why Paul's letters to Corinth are so lengthy. Believers being drawn out of a life of pride, a life of ambition, a life of idolatry, and a life of deep sexual sin. Not only that, but we see that there are believers who continue to struggle against these same temptations which had haunted their pagan past. It provides the broad contours of Paul's first letter to the church of Corinthians. And so here in chapter 10, Paul begins to remind the church of Israel's fate when they continued to indulge in idolatry and sexual immorality. Those are the two broad categories that Paul is dealing with in this chapter. If you look at verse 6, Israel's history provides a warning, an example for us that we would not desire evil as they did. In verse 7, Paul warns the Corinthian believers neither to return to their past idols, nor to indulge in sexual immorality. Reminding them in verse, tw- uh, verse 8, that remember Israel, as they continued at the base of Mount Sinai, 23,000 were struck dead in a day for their continued sin and lack of repentance. Verse 12, sober up. If you let your guard down in this area, you will fall too. And yet in verse 13, Paul reminds the church of God's powerful grace to hold us up and to bear us under the weight of all manner of temptations, even sexual temptations, strong as they may be. I think we could certainly relate to Corinth's situation, can't we? This is not simply yet another ancient text. This is God's inspired word given to feed his people here, even in the 21st century, that perhaps, as we were reminded, we are not too different from the church in Corinth. Think of society today, your sexual impulses are a state-sanctioned right. Welcome to Pleasure Island. Give in to your deepest and darkest desires. We live in a society where in the past few years it's not only commended, but In one sense, it seems commanded. It is your constitutional right to partake. So we can feel the pressure. If society is allowing these things, why in the world can't I indulge? I have a buddy of mine, a very good friend of mine uh, back home, who struggles with same-sex attraction. Uh, And uh, church, uh, uh, there was a church down the street that had all the components of everything that he loved Uh, claiming to be uh, an evangelical church, and yet told him it was quite okay for him to give in to these sins. And he looks and he said, "Here's, here's an opportunity for me to have both. It's not like I'm wanting to disregard the faith. Why can't I have both? Why can't I have my cake and eat it too? I'm not denying Christianity. Nobody's saying I have to attend church. Why can't I do both? Well, Paul gives an answer as to why you cannot do both. He spurs us on to holiness, whatever the temptation that besets us. Notice Paul's rather baffling answer to this question. When Paul says to flee idolatry, to flee sexual immorality, you could think, well, why? What's the grounds? What's the reason that can be given? Paul could have said, well, because it's your moral duty. Likewise, Paul could have simply said, because God said so. Remember the seventh commandment. 
Paul could have said any one of these things, and he could have been absolutely right. And yet we get a sense of Paul's heart as he gives uh, yet another motivation for it. As we're tempted with the allures of those besetting sins, be it ambition, greed, whatever it is that your heart desires, that God's law forbids, why can't I have just a taste? Paul gives the reason. Because of the Lord's Supper, it's not really the answer that you would expect, is it? But you see that here in verse 14. Is this not a participation in the body and the blood of Christ? Is this not friendship with Christ that is at stake? Is this not a sharing in Christ? See, I think for a lot of us coming from uh, maybe a broader evangelical tradition, I know I did, we, we think of communion as the, the emphasis on our communion with one another. And that's true. We'll get to that in verse 17. But first and foremost, the Lord's Supper is seen to be a communion with your Savior. It is a meal that you share with Christ, or better, it is a meal that Christ shares with us. Not only that, it's a present communion. It's not, it is a memorial. Christ calls us to remember what he has done when we come to this table, but it is not a bare memorial. You, know, you notice the, uh, uh, the, the present tense of the verbiage. This is a present communion with Christ. Christ is present at this supper by his Spirit. Of course, it raises the question, what are we participating in Exactly. You see this in verse 15. Paul begins to say, I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I have to say. In other words, put on your thinking caps. Let's think about the nature of the supper and what it signifies. What are the elements? What are the things present? Well, you have the body and you have the cup, or the bread and the cup. What do they signify? They signify the body and blood of Christ given for you. As Christ himself said on the night in which he was betrayed, what is the blood represent. It signifies the forgiveness of sins. As the, as the cup is poured out, as the blood is shed for the forgiveness and the remission of sins for many. In fact, on the night in which Christ was betrayed, he took that cup of blessing and he said that this cup is what? This cup is the cup of the new covenant. Harking back to that language of the, the promise of the prophet uh, uh, Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31 where the Lord says, I will be yours. You will be mine. Isn't that what meals signify with friends so much? You don't really uh, try to have uh, meals with your enemies too much, do you? I think as Christians, it's something we, we need to think about. But generally speaking, in the broader society, you know, you might have uh, meals with potential clients, business transactions, coworkers, but really the meals you enjoy are the meals with friends. The meal signifies something. And we see that here. It's like sharing a meal over table with friends. So Christ here shares this meal with us now as he told his disciples at the Last Supper. No longer do I call you servants. Now I call you friends. Here we feast with our Savior. Here we feast on our Savior by faith as we begin to partake or we continue our participation in those great benefits of redemption as he sanctifies us by his word. But what we see is this is not a TV dinner tray. 
We are not taking this meal in isolation. We do not share in this meal by ourselves. We are called to share this meal together. We see this in verse 17 as Paul reminds us it's not only a present participation with Christ, it is also a joint participation with fellow believers in Christ. Paul continues to tug at our heartstrings, asking the question, why should you flee idolatry? Verse 17, why? Because there is one bread. He points to the bread given at the supper. He says, we who are many are one, one body. In other words, you think of that bread, we think of it being the body of Christ, but then we also have to ask the other question, who is the body of Christ? Yes, there's Christ's body in heaven, but it also signifies the fact that we, being united to Christ, are Christ's body as well. For we all partake of one bread. Because we've been united to Christ who is one, so we who are united to Christ also are one. So at the supper, though you are communing primarily with Christ, He is the host at the table. We are gathered around together. It's, it's like uh, being invited to a birthday party at a hibachi grill. You ever go to one of those Japanese restaurants where a uh, m- number of people are gathered around the table. You don't, you're just, not just sitting by yourself as one party. There's a group of people. And Christ gathers His people together and says, because you and I are friends, I want you to meet your new family. I want you to meet your friends. This reminds us at the supper that Christianity is not simply a just me and my Bible religion. The Lord's Supper undercuts the autonomy and independence of those who want to live and do religion all by their lonesome. That is not the way of the cross. It's not the way of the people of God. Remember what John says in his first epistle, as he begins by saying, indeed, our fellowship, using that same language of participation we see here, our fellowship, our participation is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and we proclaim this message also to you. Why? So that you too might have fellowship, not only with the Father and the Son, but that you might have fellowship with us. In other words, our vertical relationship with our triune God purchased by the blood of Christ, grounds our horizontal relationship with one another. And so Paul says quite clearly that this bread signifies one body, just as we are baptized into one body, and it is Christ's body. And you are so closely associated with Christ. You are so united to your Savior if you have put your trust in Him that Christ calls you His very body. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In fact, I would contend that there is no greater unity on earth expressed than what we see here together at the Lord's Supper. What is it that binds us together? And it's not a political affiliation that binds us. And no political organization can touch the unity seen here at the table. There's no ideological movement that can approximate the unity found here at the supper. It's not our political affiliations that bind us together. It is not our own personal level of sanctification that binds us together. It is not even our own view on mask wearing that binds us together. Rather, it is the blood of Christ that unites each and every one of us. 
to those who have called upon him in faith, neither race, nor age, nor gender, nor marital status, nor economic income, nor social standing, nor political affiliation. All of these are leveled at the cross because none of these justify us before the throne of God. Nothing but faith in Christ justifies. Therefore, nothing but faith in Christ unites Our union and our communion run much deeper than our political affiliations, their own personal ideologies, than our own neighborhoods that we live in. It's interesting, in the 1550s, there's this Franciscan monk who visited the town of Geneva where uh, the Reformed Church uh, under Calvin had been uh, uh, growing uh, quite steadily, and he went to scope it out to see what this church was up to, and he was scandalized by what he saw. He goes back home, and he satirizes uh, the Reformed Church in Geneva in Switzerland. What was he so scandalized by? Well, he writes, he says, "There, there are men seated together without any distinction of personal rank. Rich and poor seated side by side, singing together, sitting under the word together, breaking bread together. To him, this was a social scandal. This was an offense of the highest order, yet this is the very thing that Paul is getting at in the heart of 1 Corinthians, even as it begins, why are you so ambitious, vying for attention, vying for power over one another? Why are there so many factions among you? Are we not one together in Christ? The Lord's Supper Supper levels the playing field. Here there is no distinction between male and female, rich and poor, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. Human status and human attainment is not operative here at the table. All are invited to come who have put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Luther says at Christ's table, we are all beggars. We're not the one who are able to pay the bill. Christ has paid, he's footed the bill by his own blood, by his own death and resurrection. What's fascinating here is this this word here, participation, and notice how often the language of participation happens in these few verses. It's a Greek word. I'm not going to tell you the word. I'm not going to be that guy who gives you the Greek word from the pulpit. But I want you to know that that word is translated a number of ways in, the, uh, in our English Bibles, and it's the same word that Paul uses to describe the diaconal offering collected to care for the poor in the church. You see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, and chapter 9, verse 13. You see it in Romans 15, 26. Paul says it over and over and over again. Is not the collection a participation in the body of Christ? It is our sharing in one another. That everything that we do here, we're singing together in unison as a body. We're gathered together here as one, irrespective of social status or distinction. We participate together at the Lord's Supper. And we give of our offerings together as one, to care for one another as one. All these things given in the life of the church to exemplify the unity of the body of Christ. So our present participation in Christ is a joint participation with one another in Christ. To plagiarize a popular phrase, and hopefully to redeem it, because I actually don't like the way it's used uh, uh, a lot of times right now. But we are in this together. We're in this together as, as the body of Christ. For all that we do, to the glory of Christ, 
And yet there is still a third aspect, a third facet to the supper that Paul brings into uh, into focus here, that it is an exclusive participation with Christ. You see that here in verses 18 to 20. Paul begins to give what we might call a negative example. Remember Israel, he says. Whenever Israel went to the altar to sacrifice, they were actually participants in the benefits that arose from that sacrifice. You think of Israel participating at the first Passover. Was there a real and legitimate benefit to participating of the Passover lamb? We would say, yes. What is it? Well, they were delivered from the angel of death, so maybe there's a little bit of benefits that's going on presently. Well, Paul makes that same point here. Were they not benefiting by participating together in that sacrifice? It's a real and present participation at the altar for Israel of old, well, now Paul begins to say, well, this is same for the, true, the same is true for the Gentiles when they sacrifice. Now, Paul is not saying that the idols of the day had any real existence. Paul's not saying that as the, uh, the people of Corinth are sacrificing to Aphrodite, that there is a real deity named Aphrodite. It's just an idol. It has no real existence. You see that in the book of Isaiah. Nevertheless, Paul does say that the food that the Gentiles eat well, what he also is not saying, he's not saying that what the Gentiles are doing is as, as they feast at their altars, that they are they're, uh, participating in some type of magical potency, that they are actually gaining some real benefit from their non-existent idol. But what he is saying is this, that the pagans, when they sacrificed to their idols, they're not sacrificing simply to idols. And Paul says, don't be mistaken, they're not sacrificing to, to the true God of heaven, heaven either. This is not simply a name by any other, you know, a God by any other name. This is, he's not articulating and all roads lead to the same path. No, he says, but when they sacrifice, they're sacrificing to demons. And Paul drives the point home even further. And if you, O Corinth, are doing this on the side, if you're indulging in pagan practices, sacrificing to idols, you too are participating with demons. How scandalous. I mean, imagine this scenario. You come home from work, your wife has cooked you a wonderful home-cooked meal. Uh, you eat, you drink, you laugh. You spend several hours enjoying each other's company. You help her wash the dishes even. You say your evening prayers together. It's a great time of fellowship at the table. And then after she goes up and goes to sleep, you slip out of the house to have a midnight snack with another woman. Two tables. You'd say, what's the big deal? I've done my duty as a husband. I've given her my time. I've even helped with the dishes. In fact, I'm not even wasting her time. She's asleep. She doesn't even know. It's not harming her conscience. I'm just having a little extra fun for myself. Who would ever be convinced by that argument? Except for one who is trying to deceive himself. What's the problem here? The problem is you know this. The the relationship you have with your wife or the relationship that you have with your husband is an exclusive relationship. There is but one table. There is no space for a second table on the side. What Paul is saying to the church at Corinth is you are doing just that when you indulge in your idolatrous hunger pains. You're communing with both God and demons, and this is not acceptable. The Lord's table reminds us that our marriage to Christ is not an open marriage. 
It is exclusive. And Paul begins to ask this, do you think God doesn't know what you're doing? Do you think that He approves? When you do this, you're in fact provoking the Lord Himself to jealousy. He is the jealous husband. We see this over and over again in the prophets, as Israel of old did the exact same thing. Do you really think you can outsmart him? Do you really think you can keep up the charade? Do you really think he doesn't already know? You might have fooled everybody else. You might have even fooled yourself. But you can't fool your Savior. Do you think you will really win out in all of this in the end if you continue without repentance? It's a sobering reminder of the dangers of idolatry. It it stirs us from the slumbers of self-deception, doesn't it? Sure, we might not worship idols of wood or stone. I doubt any of us, if we were to go down the street uh, to Fred Meyer, you'd see somebody sacrificing a goat um, between, you know, next to the, to the Twinkies and the Milk Duds. But idolatry is something that runs much deeper than objects of wood or stone. Colossians chapter 3 refers to our own covetous hearts as idolatry. Covetousness is, in fact, idolatry. And in such a materialistic society, we find idols in every corner, maybe not on the streets, but we find it in every nook and cranny of our own idolatrous hearts. So we have to ask the question, where is it that your heart longs to find communion? What fills the hunger pains? Where do your eyes look late at night? What is it that your soul aches for? It's a question I'd like you to ask yourself over the weekend. In terms of self-reflection, if you could indulge yourself in one sin without consequence, what would it be? Perhaps you would know then where your weaknesses lie. You answer that, you might find out that we actually, all of us have more idols than we'd care to admit or ever thought that we ever had. But the good news is, that the Lord loves repentance. And that's what this meal is all about. That's what this table is all about. Full pardon, full forgiveness, full restoration. Not, not a self-imposed probationary period. Full and unfettered communion. But he beckons us to renounce those sins that so easily ensnare us. So often we seek these lesser things in an attempt to satisfy those deep longings of our hearts forgetting that Christ alone can truly satisfy. So Ecclesiastes says, you, have, you, O Lord, have set eternity in men's hearts. And it is only the one who fills eternity that can satisfy them. And here at the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that we have full provision of the deepest longings spread out before us, graciously donated in a bountiful feast, a meal paid for by the blood of Christ. This table reminds us that we are Christ's. We cannot do as we please. This table also reminds us that He is ours. And we have nothing greater. Nothing that can even approach it. So I hope this meal helps reorient our perspective. That that you have your appetites filled not by sin, but your appetites fulfilled at the supper. As we're reminded of the grace given to us and the benefits of redemption given at the cross through faith in Christ. It is the great balm in the midst of our darkest temptations. And as He offers grace for strength, He comes to give help in time of need. So let us go before the Lord now as we pray.
and ask Him to bless us and bless His Word. Gracious God and Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We ask that Your Word would convict our hearts, but also strengthen and feed us. We ask that we would be given the strength by Your Spirit to flee temptation, to flee idolatry, to repudiate those sinful dispositions and desires, to reorder our appetites, and to drink deeply of the rivers of grace at this table prepared before us. We ask that by Your Word and by Your Supper, by these ordinary means of grace, You would train our hearts to find communion with Christ as our greatest joy. A joy that obliterates all other lesser appetites. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.